I want to encourage you guys to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you do not have a copy of Scripture with you, that's totally okay. You can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's page 811 in the Pew Bible, page 811. You know, church, a, a story is told of a pastor who was preaching on the topic of loving our enemies. And the pastor asked the congregation to raise their hands if they had any enemies. And, of course, everyone raised their hands, except for Mrs. Watson, who was sitting in the first row. The stunned pastor asked, wow, Mrs. Watson, that's very unusual. May I ask how old you are? She replied, I'm 95 years old. And the pastor delightfully said, oh, Mrs. Watson, what a blessing and example you are to us all. Would you mind standing up and telling the congregation how a person can live to be 95 years old and not have an enemy in the world? And then the little sweetheart of a lady pushed herself up with the help of a cane, and she faced the congregation, and she said, that's easy, I just outlived the old hags. <laughs> you know, church, the sad reality of living in a sinful world is that all of us are going to have enemies from time to time. It could be a belligerent neighbor, a broken friendship, family drama, school drama, a coworker or boss who hassles you, you name it. Unfortunately, the potential for making enemies is endless. And that's especially true if you claim to be a follower of Christ. You see, 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world, what? Hates you. You see, because Christian values are vastly different than worldly values, pushback and persecution from the world should be expected. The question then becomes, how should we as Christians respond to the pushback and the persecution that we will inevitably face? Well, I like what Warren Wearsby says. He says, we may not be able to prevent other people from being our enemies, but we can prevent ourselves from being enemies toward others. In other words, you may not be able to control the actions of those around you, but you can control your actions toward those around you. In fact, how you act toward those around you, especially those who are your enemies, reveals a lot about your relationship with the Lord. You see, Jesus said in Luke 6.35, this is a parallel passage to the passage we're going to be looking at today. He says, love your enemies, which is already a tough pill to swallow. We'll get to that later. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. And then your reward from heaven will be very great. And what? You will be truly acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You see, friends, when we choose to do well to those who do us wrong, when we choose to love our enemies, we're acting as children of God, and we're following in the footsteps of our Savior. And so this morning, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find Jesus expounding more on this reality. And it's through today's study, we're going to be reminded of a simple yet important truth to remember about being a kingdom citizen, and it's this. Kingdom citizens love the unlovable. Love the unlovable. So why don't you, let's pray, let's bow our heads and pray before we hop into God's word and then we'll, we'll jump into our study. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity again to jump into your word, to spend some time studying what you've taught us many, many years ago. And so God, I just pray your blessing over our time in your word. May you be honored and glorified. May I get out of the way. And I pray that you would speak to the hearts of our people today. And all God's people said, amen. So church, as most of you know, we've been on this Sermon on the Mount journey for a while, and, and this is Jesus' most popular and provocative sermon, primarily because all throughout his sermon, he exposes the true sinful condition of the human heart, and then in doing so, he gave his listeners new radical standards of righteousness to follow. 
And so to his listeners then and to us today, this, this particular sermon is hard to hear because it cuts to the heart. In fact, C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, was known for saying that he did not care for the Sermon on the Mount. Responding to his critics, he wrote this, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who, can be, who could like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And you know, Church, C.S. Lewis was right. Even a casual reading of the Sermon on the Mounts, if taken heart, will leave you flattened, which in some ways is precisely the point. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to uncover our sin. It's meant to show us our need for a Savior. However, it's also meant to reveal the type of righteousness that we are capable of when we have the Savior's power working in and through us. And so today's teaching is no exception. So let's begin by reading the whole passage, and then we'll break it down. It's Matthew chapter 5, page 811 in your pew Bible, starting at verse 43. Follow along with me, if you will. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, church, I came across a, a true story of an Armenian nurse who was taken captive along with her brother by the Turks. And sadly, her brother was killed by a Turkish soldier right in front of her eyes. And somehow she escaped, and she later became a nurse in the military hospital. And one day, this Armenian nurse was stunned to learn that the same man who had killed her brother was captured and brought wounded to the hospital where she worked. And so something within her cried out, vengeance, right? But then a stronger voice cried out, for her to love. And so instead of retaliating, she revived this man back to health. Now eventually the recuperating soldier asked, why didn't you let me die? And her answer was, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. And impressed with her answer, the young soldier replied, I never heard such words before. Tell me more. I want this kind of religion. You see, church, when we choose to follow God's ways over our own, it can have a life-changing impact on those around us, even our worst enemies. In fact, it's for this reason the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, 20, verses 20 through 21, uh, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And so in today's text in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be learning more about the type of loving kindness that characterizes a kingdom citizen. In fact, found within today's passage are three qualities of kingdom love. Let's look at the first. And it's this, kingdom love is radical. It's radical. Look again at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, church, one of the most fundamental reasons why it's important for us to become students of God's word 
is to know what's in God's word. And more importantly, to know what's not in God's word. Why? Because there are many people, even many Christians, who believe the Bible says things that it doesn't actually say. For example, God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. God won't give you anything you can't handle. Not in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I agree. Not in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. Close, but no cigar. Not in the Bible. You see, for one reason or another, people tend to add to, misinterpret, or misuse scripture to justify their own attitudes and actions. And this was precisely what Christ's original listeners were doing as well. You see, Jesus begins with this phrase, you have heard, or you shall love your neighbor, which this was a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus 19.18. It's on the screen. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there's no problem with that statement. However, the phrase, and hate your enemy, is nowhere to be found in Old Testament law. This was a phrase that the Israelites added on later. Why? Because they conveniently assumed that neighbor meant only a fellow Israelite. Therefore, in their minds, the command to love your neighbor meant a limited love. Only loving those who are within God's chosen circle. And so here's what's happening. In essence, they use what was not said in Leviticus 19 to justify hating their enemies, while at the same time ignoring other Old Testament passages that taught loving kindness toward your enemies. In other words, they found another way to pervert scripture to justify their own sinful actions. We've seen this happening all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The church, do you see how easy it is to mess around with God's word? Talk to me. Can you see how easy it is? Can you see how easy it is to, to make assumptions about what's not there or maybe add on to what is there or say things like cleanliness is next to godliness? I know it's somewhere in the Bible, but it's not. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's why we need to be careful. If we're students of God's word, we can protect ourselves from being deceived. So Jesus took their twisted thinking and he turned it on its head. And so instead of affirming his listeners' assumptions about limited love, he called them back to God's standard of a radical, unlimited Love, verse 44, should be on the screen. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, church, I've heard it said that to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And so in no uncertain terms, Jesus is calling his listeners to divine action. Action that calls us to extend love and intercede in prayer for our enemies. Church, there's been several times in my life where I've had enemies. Believe it or not, a good-looking guy like me with a personality like mine, so dynamic and wonderful, has enemies once in a while. I've had people who've rubbed me the wrong way, who've got under my skin, who've caused me to get angry and irritable. And on more than one occasion, I've wanted to treat them the same way I would treat an annoying bug. I've wanted to swat them, smack them, and smash them. However, on more than one occasion... I've been reminded of these verses, usually by someone who's close to me who kind of brings me back down to a normal thinking level. In fact, I can specifically remember instances in my life where I chose to pray for my enemies, which, by the way, not easy. Not easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be a command, right? Not easy. But I did. And what I've found is that when we choose to pray for our enemies, 
an unexplainable supernatural thing takes place. One commentator accurately noted, when you pray for someone while, you're, while they're persecuting you, you are assaulting the throne of God on their behalf. That is supernatural. And if you do that, you are walking in the heavenlies with Jesus. And one of the benefits of praying for our enemies is that it changes us. Friends, there's no doubt that one of the blessings that we receive when we choose to love and pray for our enemies is a change in heart toward our enemies. And sometimes, sometimes, even our enemies have a change in heart toward us. And I've, I've experienced this firsthand. But even if no immediate change occurs, when we choose to love our enemies, we're choosing to follow in the footsteps of Christ, which is a blessing in and of itself. Because church, the single greatest act of love in all of human history is when Jesus died on the cross for his enemies. Romans 5 verses 7 through 8, picture it beautifully. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, read this with me, loud, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, humiliated by his enemies, what did he do? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, Jesus set the ultimate example of what it looks like to love and pray for our enemies. And so when we choose to follow his example, it's distinguishing us as being followers of Christ or children of God. Look at verse 45. It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, uh, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying to, in order to become a child of God, you need to, to, to love your enemies. This is not a works-based thing. We know that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. But what he's saying is when you love your enemies, it makes you like a child of God. People see you as a child of God. And that leads us to the second quality. Kingdom love is recognizable. It's recognizable. Look at verses 46 and 47. It should be on the screen. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Church, whenever my family goes on long road trips on the highway, there's certain signs that we look for along the way. Specifically, big blue signs. Why? Because those big blue signs tell us something. They tell us that food is close by, gas is close by, or lodging is close by. And what's interesting is on those signs, do you ever notice it's never just the name of a place, but the, it's the symbol with the name. Think, think about this when you're on the highway. You Rarely are you just going to see the name of a place on a blue sign off of an exit. You're going to see the symbol. In church, there's a reason for that. People remember symbols, yes? You could have a sign that's got 67 symbols on it, but we all recognize the golden arches as what? Burger King. Sorry. It's <laughs> messing with you. McDonald's, right? People remember symbols. Well, in the same way, kingdom citizens are supposed to have a symbol that is not only recognizable, but it distinguishes us from the rest of the world's symbols. You know what that symbol is? Love. Love for one another, with, and of course, within this context, love for our enemies. And in, the, in these verses, Jesus illustrates why this is important. 
I mean, we all know that no one likes the tax man, right? But in Jesus' day, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. They were wretched crooks who often made people overpay for their taxes only to keep the profits for themselves. So when Jesus said, do not even tax collectors do the same, his illustration was to show that even tax collectors love those who were their own. And his point was that if you only showed love to your comrades, you're not really distinguishing yourself, are you? You're no different than a crooked tax collector. Or if you're a friend who only shows love or kindness to their friends, then you're, you're really no different than everyone else. Everyone could do. That's the easy stuff, right? As kingdom citizens, we're called to a higher standard of loving, a standard that sets us apart from the rest of the world. One commentator put it this way, the Christian is the man who is above and goes beyond the natural man at his very best and highest. He is capable of doing something that the best natural man cannot do. He goes beyond and does more than that. He exceeds. He is separate from all others, and not only from the worst among others, but from the very best and highest among them. Church, kingdom love is recognizable because it stands in great contrast to worldly love. It also is recognizable because it's rare. When's the last time you saw kingdom love? lately. I mean, this past year has revealed a lot about God's people. Forget the world, about God's people. Not a lot of kingdom love happening when politics gets in the way. But church, I want to tell you something. When we choose to embrace kingdom love by the power of God, we are able to replicate the personality of God to those around us. And that's what every follower of Christ is called to do. Kingdom love, recognizable. This leads us to the third quality. Kingdom love is righteous. Look at verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does anyone feel flattened yet? Perfect. Church, this is by far the most flattening statement in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's appropriate to say that these striking words are not just a summary of Christ's teaching on love, but really a summary of the entire sermon. At the end of the day, Christ's expectation for his listeners is this pursuit of perfection. To have perfect, spotless, righteousness in all areas of life. How you, how you doing with that? 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Church, just as there is no darkness in Christ, there should be no darkness in Christ's followers. Now, at first glance, I understand that this expectation seems impossible, imposible, Right? because it is. It's because it is, church. At least left to our own power, it is. However, this doesn't mean that we are left without hope. In fact, quite the opposite is true. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he said this, he said, I, I find many a good people bothered by our Lord's words, be ye perfect. Some people seem to think this means unless you're perfect, I will not help you. 
As, as we cannot be perfect then, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he did mean that. I think he meant, the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may, not, you may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. And church, C.S. Lewis was right again. You see, Jesus does expect his followers to press on to perfect righteousness, which will ultimately be accomplished when we're with him in glory. But he doesn't expect us to press on alone. One verse that I've referred to often throughout this series is worth referring to again. It's 2 Peter 1.3. By his what? Divine power. Whose power? His power. God has given who? Us. Everything we need for living a godly life. Church, let's read this whole verse again out loud. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So you might be sitting here wondering how, you're feeling flattened and you're wondering how in the world can you possibly, how can I possibly love my enemies like Jesus? The answer is you can't. You can't. But with God's power working within you, you can. Which is why we should wake up every single day and continue throughout the course of our day asking the Lord to empower us to live righteously. we got to tap into that power. A wall outlet does no good unless you plug into it, right? We have to plug into the power that God has given to us. Because let me tell you something, church, when we're empowered by Christ, I'm telling you, we're going to be blown away with how we can love like Christ. We're going to look at ourselves and be like, that is not me. I wanted to kill the dude. But when we ask, Lord, help me to love the unlovable, love my enemies, and, and you just allow God to work in you, you're going to be blown away and wondering, who in the world is this dude? And you're going to realize it's the Lord working through you. And so this leads us back to today's truth to remember. Kingdom citizens love the unlovable. Now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the first step in loving like a kingdom citizen is making sure you are one. You need to be a kingdom citizen to love like a kingdom citizen, church. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friend, make no mistake about it. If you haven't personally trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're not a child of God. You're an enemy of God. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, the Bible teaches us that our sin is what separates us from God. Dave had alluded to this as, as we celebrated communion earlier today. And so the only way to bridge that gap is to believe in Jesus. Not just believe things about Jesus that may even be true, but believe in Jesus. Personally receive him as your Lord and Savior. Friends, God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you don't have to go to hell when you die. 
And you can even right now make a decision to believe in him and move from being a faithful enemy of God to a forever child of God. One decision can change your whole, can literally change the whole track of your life. <clears throat> I made that decision when I was 17 years old. 18, 17. I'm getting too old to remember all the numbers. But I do remember this. If you knew me as a teenager, the last thing you'd think is I'd be standing up here preaching as a pastor of Grace Bible Church. But that's what happens. The one decision that you can make can change the trajectory of your life forever. So if you desire to, to change, if you want to have that changed life, if you want to know for sure that you are a child of God this morning, just admit that you're a sinner before God, not, not before me. I know you're a sinner. We're all sinners, right? Like, duh. We don't have to admit that to each other, but we need to admit it to God. Say, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. And I repent of my sin, and I, and I ask for your forgiveness, and I, by faith, believe in the Lord Jesus. I don't, I don't believe in anything. I just trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Because Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? It is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. I'd like to invite the praise team to come forward. We're going to close in one more song before we wrap things up this morning. And friends, if you need prayer today, you can come find me after church. I'd be happy to pray with you. Find one of our other pastors. If you've got an enemy in your life that is really rubbing you the wrong way and, and you're wrestling with, with what God's word uh, communicates with us today, let me pray for you. I'm just going to pray for you all generically because I know that we all have enemies. We've got people that just rub us the wrong way and we just need God's power to intervene. I guess if you need anything at all, call me or come see me or one of the other pastors. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And, Lord, the Sermon on the Mount, as, as our long-gone brother in Christ, C.S. Lewis, said, it is a hard sermon to digest. And it does leave us flattened. And we would stay flattened had it not been for you. You gave us all these standards that you, you desire for us to follow, but you recognize that we cannot do it. And so that you became that perfect standard of righteousness. You lived this perfect life and died on our behalf so that we might be saved. And so, Lord, when we believe in you, your word says that your righteousness is transferred onto us. We exchange our sin for your righteousness. And, God, we praise you for that truth today. Lord, thank you that at one point in our lives we were your enemies, but now we are seated at your table. And God, I do pray for our church body. If there's anyone here this morning that needs to trust you as their Lord and Savior, that they would today. I also pray, Lord, that if there are enemies in our lives, in the hearts of our people, enemies that are just attacking in all different forms, Lord, give our people the power to love them like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.